Well, in Isaiah chapter 53, beginning in verse 1, we read, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Once there was a fire and brimstone preacher. He was a passionate man with a demonstrative style. He would prance around the platform only to return to the pulpit just in time to pound his fist down on the desk. But one Sunday he had a problem with his lapel mic. The leash-like cord restricted his movement. And all through the sermon that morning, the preacher pulled and tugged and yanked at the cord. He was making constant adjustments. It was obvious that this cord was a bother to him. Finally, toward the end of his sermon, he gathered up as much slack in the cord as he could to make a dramatic lunge toward the congregation. With arms waving, with fingers pointing, he screeched out, Repent! That's when one little boy, he leaned over and he whispered to his father, Dad, will he hurt us if he gets loose? <laughs> Trust me, growing up in southern churches, I've witnessed a few preachers who caused me to think, if this guy gets loose, somebody's going to get hurt. 
fiery, angry, demonstrative preachers gave me the impression that they were mad at the world. Their voice and cadence and mannerisms appeared semi-violent. And as a kid, I assumed this must be God's attitude. I feared him, but for all the wrong reasons. I figured that if God got loose, he might hurt someone. If you've ever had that notion about God, you need to study Isaiah chapter 53. For in this chapter, God does get loose. He leaves the halls of heaven. He gets loose on earth. And yes, the scene becomes bloody and violent. The Almighty does strike and smite someone. Verse 10 is the chapter's key verse. It tells us, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise. God used his belt. Don't misunderstand. God didn't lose his temper or go off in some uncontrollable rage. No, the spanking that God administered was well calculated. It was carefully planned. And yet there's no doubt he left a welt, a mark. Don't tell defects, but God the Father caused a bruise. And yet who did he bruise? Not you. Not me. God knows it was man who deserved a whipping, but it was never God's intention to lay a hand on any of us. This is so shocking. This is so stunning. No matter how many times I read it, I am always astonished that when God's Son was let loose on earth, God didn't move to bruise the sinner. It pleased the Father in heaven to bruise His only Son. It's beyond our wildest imagination, but God bruised the Savior, not the sinner. As we've been learning, the prophecy of Isaiah contains portraits of Jesus. And here's a portrait that we didn't expect. Isaiah 53 is a chapter full of surprises. It tells me when the Savior appeared. It depicts His countenance. It describes the reception he received. It portrays his demeanor and shows the Savior's calm in the midst of crisis. It reveals the circumstances of his death. It predicts his eventual resurrection. And this chapter, it even exposes his scars. Oh, those scars. The bruises and the stripes and the wounds. Chapter 53's biggest surprise is its explanation of Jesus' scars. We find that when God got loose on earth, rather than hurt us, he hurt his only son. In fact, verse 4 refers to Jesus as smitten by God. What a scandalous phrase. In a one-time act of violence, God struck his prized and precious and perfect son. Why? So that you could be pardoned and cured and comforted forever. This chapter proves for all time that God is not angry and mad at us. He doesn't want to harm or judge or condemn us to hell. He is literally dying to be our friend. And if we let him, he'll shoulder our burden. He'll obtain for us the help we need. Hey, let me share with you this morning a few of the surprises I find in Isaiah chapter 53. First, notice in verse 2. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. 
Notice Jesus came to earth in a dry, arid, barren season. If you had been around at the time in history, you might not have noticed the dryness. Rome dominated the world politically. Athens cast the long shadow of Greek culture. Jerusalem was the capital of religion. Secular historians refer to the first century A.D. as a golden age. But spiritually speaking, the landscape was dusty and barren and bleak and infertile. Until John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, there had not been a prophetic voice in Israel for 400 years. Heaven had been silent, sealed up for four centuries. In its place, in the place of God's voice, Phariseeism and hypocrisy had had a vice grip on Israel. Prejudice had made the Jews ineffective at reaching their neighbors. The Jewish preoccupation was political liberation, not spiritual growth. And rather than worship God, they used God to promote their own agenda. Oh, dry, crusty, unplowed hearts awaited Jesus. Why didn't God turn Jesus loose on earth at a more opportune time? Say, in the days of the Hebrew prophets, or maybe during the reign of King David, or even on the heels of Moses in the Exodus. Well, God doesn't tell us. All we know is that spiritually speaking, God sent Jesus into the world at low tide. The most beautiful and fruitful flower the world has ever seen sprung up from the ugliest, most desolate desert. Christianity rose from obscurity, from underdog status, to literally change the world. Isaiah calls Jesus a tender plant. He was alive and eager and growing. He loved life. Jesus loved people. He was brimming with life in a world full of deadness. Surprisingly, hope sprung eternal out of the barren ground of a village called Nazareth. Salvation bloomed and redemption budded in a man named Jesus. But here's another surprise. Notice in the last half of verse 2, Isaiah mentions Jesus' physical appearance. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Here's another shocker. Did you know Jesus wasn't six feet tall, blonde hair, blue eyes, and bulging biceps? Leading man looks, a Matthew McGonaghy persona? When God came to earth, you'd think he'd appear as a holy hunk. The Hebrew word translated form here means a striking profile. Comeliness means beauty. And according to Isaiah, Jesus had neither. You know, it's funny to see pictures of Jesus where he looks like a red-headed Irishman. Jesus was Jewish. I'm sure he had Jewish features. By the way, next to the Irishman, here is a composite picture that appeared in Popular Mechanics several years ago of what a first century Jew looked like. It was based on three Jewish skulls that dated back to that period. It's not the Irish Jesus. Here's an average Jewish male in the days of Jesus. I have a book in my library. It's called the Archco Volume. It's a collection of old documents found tucked away in the back recesses of the Vatican. And its content is suspect at best. But in it, there is a supposed physical description of our Lord Jesus. It reads as follows. He is the picture of his mother, only he has not her smooth, round face. 
He is tall, and his shoulders are a little drooped. His visage is thin and of a swarthy complexion, in other words, dark and dusky. His eyes are large and soft blue and rather dull and heavy. The lashes are long, and his eyebrows very large. His nose is that of a Jew. In fact, he reminds me of an old-fashioned Jew in every sense of the word. Now, we have no idea if this description is authentic, but it does square nicely with Isaiah's observation that he has no form or comeliness that we should desire him. See, this is why Jesus could blend in and slip through the crowd. This is why Judas had to identify Jesus with a kiss, for he had no physical features that would set him apart. God's son looked like an ordinary Joe. It seems Jesus came to win the world, not some beauty contest. If you were the type of person who measured a man by appearance, you would have ignored God's son. He wasn't dashing or attractive or exceptionally strong. When people flocked to Jesus, it wasn't because of his good looks. It was because of his goodness. Jesus wasn't just another pretty face. He grabbed your attention, not with show, but with substance with the force of his character and kindness, with his virtue and his purity, with his fierce devotion to truth and yet his incredible displays of love. This is what drew folks to our Lord Jesus. And this is what still draws people. If you were walking down the streets of Jerusalem and bumped into Jesus, you would have been surprised by his nondescript appearance. Is this God's son? Our Lord Jesus wasn't an eye catcher. His appeal was deeper than the eyes. He touched the heart and mind and souls of men. He touched a part within us that had lied dormant, that because of sin had been dead to God. Jesus awakened in us a spiritual hunger, and He still causes us to pursue our deeper longings. But verse 3 also surprises us. He is despised and rejected by men. God visited And he was rejected? John chapter 1 verse 11 says it best. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. Jesus was God and he backed it up with prophetic and miraculous proof. Yet the Jews recoiled at his claims because he didn't look the part. You see, the Greek gods were colossal, muscular, robust, beautiful. But Jesus looked common even for a mortal. Jesus claimed to be God, but was despised by his fellow Jews. They saw his appearance and his agenda as the antithesis of what they'd come to expect from God. At the time, the Jews were in a political struggle with Rome. They longed for freedom and independence. They were mounting military intervention. What surprised them was that Jesus could care less. Jesus could care less about what they wanted. He cared about their heart. Does it ever bother you that sometimes Jesus could care less about the issues with which you're preoccupied? You're struggling to get rich or be successful or climb the corporate ladder while Jesus stays focused on peace in your heart and love for your neighbor and responsibility toward your family? He cares about integrity and truth. He's concerned about the things that will last for all eternity. 
You know, on the one hand, it surprises me to read Jesus was despised and rejected by men. But then I remember my own heart and how far it's able to stray from God's priorities. And you know, it doesn't really surprise me at all. God's Son paid a visit to this world and we were so out of sync with His will that we despised and rejected Him. Here's another surprise. Look at Jesus' demeanor. There is a tear in His eye. There is a grimace on His face. He is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. This is shocking to me. God is the pure essence of joy. When He made the world, He said that it was good. He was happy, satisfied, pleased with His creation. And yet when He re-entered His original domain in the person of Jesus, He saw so many things that were not good that He weeped at the damage that sin had caused. Understand, Jesus lived on this planet in its fallen state with the clear knowledge of how God meant life to be from the beginning. And everywhere that Jesus turned, he saw the contrast of what is with what should be. And it caused him unrelenting sorrow. He was a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. This is why Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. Death was never God's ideal. This is why in the Garden of Gethsemane, he shed tears like thick drops of blood. Pain and betrayal were man's inventions. This is why Jesus stood on the Mount of Olives, overlooking Jerusalem, and he wept over the people's stubbornness. He said, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Jesus ached to free us from our own hard-heartedness. You know, it's surprising indeed that the Lord of life, that the Prince of Peace, that the King of Joy was also a man of sorrows. Isaiah 53 also surprises us with certain details of Jesus' death. Remember, Isaiah is writing prophecy. He's speaking of events before they occur. He occupies a place on the timeline that's 700 years before Jesus, and yet he looks ahead to Calvary's cross. In verse 12, he writes that Jesus will be numbered with the transgressors. One day on Mount Calvary, the Son of God will be hanging on a cross between sinful men. Reminds me of the old preacher on his deathbed. He asked the nurse to call for his congressman and his senator so he could die in peace. She thought this was strange. How could having two politicians present help anyone die in peace? Yet she complied. When the men arrived, the preacher positioned them on either side of his bed. Then he turned to the nurse and said, Now I can die like my Lord Jesus between two thieves. <laughs> I've told that joke before, but it just gets getting better and better. Notice, too, Isaiah surprises us with Jesus' reaction to the accusations hurled against him at his trial before Pilate. Verse 7 tells us, He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus endured his interrogation without becoming defensive, without resorting to any kind of self-preservation. Matthew tells us that even Pilate marveled greatly at the poise and composure of Jesus. It was obvious this man was marching to a different drummer. 
Deep inside, Jesus knew that the cross was God's will for his life. The Roman tribunal was simply a tool in the hands of God's providence. Verse 9 reveals another surprising revelation. Isaiah tells us that Jesus was laid in a rich man's grave. And the Gospels affirm this prophecy. There was a rich Jew who believed in Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea volunteered his own tomb, his new tomb, for the burial. In fact, when we go to Jerusalem, we always visit what many believe is Joseph's tomb. On our last trip, I actually walked up to meet our garden guide when all of a sudden he said to me, Pastor Sandy, it's so great to see you again. Surprise, surprise, he knew me. He was actually a German fellow who had attended a pastor's conference that I'd spoken at in Ziegen several years ago. Talk about a small world. You never know who you might bump into in that garden. But imagine the women at the tomb bumping into Jesus. Three days after his execution, they came to anoint a cold corpse only to find Jesus alive and well. Speaking of which, Isaiah even predicts Jesus' resurrection. We're told in verse 10, When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed or his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Jesus' triumph over death did prolong his days. 2,000 years later, he still lives. He is as active as ever. He is still at work healing hearts and saving souls. In fact, we have been born again of his spirit. We have become his seed, his sons and daughters today. Isaiah even promises that one day the risen Lord Jesus will return to earth to fulfill all the good pleasure of the Lord. Which brings up the chapter's most surprising revelation, those scars. The Savior's incredible scars. You know, on display in Rome at St. Peter's Basilica is Michelangelo's masterpiece, the Piata. This famous sculpture depicts Mary holding in her arms the body of her crucified son. And the sculpture is so lifelike. When you see it, you're amazed that so much passion and tenderness could be captured in a chunk of cold stone. Once a tour group was standing in front of this world-famous structure. When this little girl, she whispered to a mother, What in the world have they done to Jesus? The mom put her finger over her lips, prompted her little girl to be quiet. But the little girl was too wrapped up in the sculpture, what she was seeing. She, she actually repeated her question, this time though with more force. She said, what in the world have they done to Jesus? And when I read Isaiah 53, I have to ask the same question. How could they have been so cruel, so calloused? What were they thinking when they hammered the spikes through his flesh and raked the scourge across his back? What kind of madness overcame them? What in the world have they done to Jesus? Here's a real shocker. In verse 5, Isaiah pins an awful, heartbreaking description. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. 
The Hebrew words paint a more vivid picture. They show us the force of the text. Wounded. It means pierced or perforated. Jesus' body was punctured in at least seven places. His two hands, his feet, his brow, his back, and his side. The term bruised can be translated beaten to pieces. You remember they struck Jesus' face with the palms of their hands. They battered and bruised him. His chastisement was the more formal scourging. The Romans used a leather strap embedded with little bits of metal and ivory and bone. Every time the whip cracked, the jagged chunks of metal dug into his skin. Imagine flesh tearing, blood splattering, bits of bone flying. When the torture squad had done its job, Jesus' torso looked like the scraps of leftover turkey after Thanksgiving dinner once all the carving is finished. And let me show you another surprise. Back in Isaiah 52, verse 14, I'll put it on the screen. We read this. His visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Two Old Testament scholars, Kiel and Delich, they translate this verse in an interesting way. This is their translation. So disfigured, his appearance was not human, and his form not like that of the children of men. In other words, when Jesus' body was taken off the cross, it wasn't just that his disciples no longer recognized it was him. Apparently, his face and his features were so badly butchered, he no longer even resembled a human being. Isaiah 50 verse 6 provides us a surprising detail of the crucifixion we don't even get from the gospel accounts. Jesus is quoted there as saying, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. I remember when the kids were little, I I wore a beard. And uh, they would reach up with their little fingers, you know, and with their little clutching reflex, you know, they'd grab my beard and they'd yank with their their little arms. But even those little guys, they could create a lot of pain. It hurt when they yanked my beard. Can you imagine? Roman soldiers literally yanking his beard off his face. They plucked out his beard. They spit in his face. Several years ago, a group of us were walking through Jerusalem's old city one night when a little Palestinian boy came out of nowhere and he spit right in my face. Imagine, he spit on me in the streets where they spit on Jesus. I should have felt honored to suffer the same treatment as my Lord, but I was angry. I'm glad I didn't catch him. (laughs) Yet Jesus was spit on. And notice what Isaiah says. He gave his cheeks over to such treatment. Jesus suffered voluntarily these crimes for us. He embraced the public humiliation of it all. He suffered in our stead. He was punished in our place. But they didn't just spit on Jesus. I mean, they couldn't have ripped out his beard without disfiguring his face. The angry Jews and Roman executioners, they didn't just kill Jesus. They wanted to maim him and torture him and disfigure him in the process. Their goal was to inflict pain, not just death. Imagine they uprooted the follicles from his very face. I mean, when they were done, Jesus looked like he had been skinned alive. 
his face and body a massive whelp. Jesus was bloodied and swollen and beaten. If there had been a funeral, trust me, there's no doubt, it would have been closed casket. No one would have bared, could have bared to look. Perhaps this was the reason that Mary failed to recognize Jesus after he rose from the dead. We know that after his resurrection, Jesus bore the scars of crucifixion in his hands and in his feet. He showed those scars to Thomas, remember. So why wouldn't he still bear his facial scars? See, here's another surprise. One we may not feel the full force of until sometime in the future. For on the day when we see Jesus for the first time, we may be shocked. In Revelation chapter 5, the apostle John, he was transported into the future, into heaven itself. He was on the lookout for a redeemer who could save the world. At first he saw no one, so he wept. That's when an angel came to John and informed him, the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. But when he turned to look at this lion, he was surprised. For he saw, and I quote, a lamb as though it had been slain. In heaven, Jesus appears as a sacrificed lamb. I believe that when we look into Jesus' face, we will see those terrible scars. And instantly we'll know how much he endured for us. We'll never doubt his love again. Charles Spurgeon describes the emotion. Stand at the foot of the cross and count the purple drops by which you have been cleansed. See the thorn crown. Mark his scourged shoulders, still gushing within crimson reels. And if you do not lie prostrate on the ground before that cross, you have never seen it. Here's a riddle for you. What's the only man-made thing in heaven? And the answer the scars on our Lord Jesus. Know how we should love and cherish those scars. There's one more surprise in this chapter, and it's the most shocking of them all. Look again at verse 5. He was wounded, yes. He was bruised, yes. But why? It was for our transgressions. It was for our iniquities. It wasn't the Romans or the Jews who nailed Jesus to the cross. He bore in his body my sin and your sin. Reminds me of the little boy who went to church with his dad on Easter Sunday. His father wanted to teach him the significance of this special day. The dad said to his son, Jesus died because people nailed him to the cross. That's when the little boy, his eyes got big as saucers. They widened up and he looked over at the church and all the people in the church and he said, you mean these people? And the right answer would have been, yes, these people. Notice verse 4. He, was, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And then verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, here's the heart of this surprising chapter. Isaiah 53 tells us that Jesus' death on the cross was substitutionary. 
Jesus was beaten and tortured and executed, not because of something he did, but because of what we did. He died in our place. He bore our sin on his shoulders. All your foul-ups, all your little acts of rebellion, all the little sins that you've done that have gone unnoticed by everyone other than God, all the sins that you've committed because you were so used to committing them that you no longer even recognize them as sin, all of these things. Think of it. All the garbage, all your garbage, all the garbage of the whole world was collected into one can and shoved on his truck. Imagine the frightful moment when that heavy load fell on Jesus' innocent shoulders. The sin of the whole world was thrust on a man who had never known even a single sin. Can you imagine the shock to his system? The sin of the bully, the rapist, the serial killer, the child molester, the suicide bomber, the abortionist. The sin of the slave masters and the Nazis and the ISIS. Even your sin and my sin were gathered up together and thrust onto the crucified Christ. We will never grasp the shock that was to his system and the pain that that caused. This is why it is foolish to think that you or I or anyone else could ever be good enough to get to heaven. If we could be, then Jesus died in vain. Do you think God would allow his son to suffer such a horrible death unless it was absolutely necessary? Reminds me of the good old boy who spent his whole life on the run from God. Did all he could to ignore Jesus. And yet he figured, ah, man, he was a good guy. He'd never robbed a bank. He'd never murdered anybody. He really didn't belong in hell. He was sure that God would make an exception for him. Yet one night he had a dream. He was standing in line at heaven's great right gate, right behind Mother Teresa, that woman who sacrificed all the world's comfort to minister to the poor. But his heart sank when he heard God say, Sorry, Teresa, but I was expecting a lot more out of you. Not even Mother Teresa of Calcutta can measure up to God's standards. Notice again verse 6. All we like sheep, like dumb, stupid sheep. We've wandered off. We've gone astray. You don't even have to be a diabolical person to be a sinner. All you got to do is just wander off from time to time. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Every mother's child is guilty before God. This is why you and I need Jesus. Here's another surprise. We all know sin carries a serious penalty. That's why we punish ourselves. Humans involve themselves in destructive patterns of behavior because they don't think they deserve the life that God offers. They don't reach out for God's help because they feel unworthy of His love. Some of you have been beating yourselves up for years. You've been living below the privileges that God wants to grant you. You're haunted by feelings of inadequacy. Understand, you can punish yourself over and over and over again, but you'll never make those guilty feelings go away. Please listen again to Isaiah. The answer is found in these surprising words. By his stripes, 
we are healed. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. Jesus bore in his body the punishment for all the hideous things that we've done. And now that we know that, to punish ourselves any longer is to belittle and to doubt the work of Jesus Christ. It's time, my friends, that we lay our guilt to rest and trust once for all in the pardon that Jesus offers. In his classic book, Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan He writes of the liberating moment in every Christian's life. I saw that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosed from his shoulders and fell off his back and landed in the grave. Then was Christian glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, He has given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Have you received rest In life, are you glad and lightsome this morning? The great church father, Jerome, he lived in Bethlehem solely because he thought it might gain God's favor. It was Jesus' birthplace. He thought that might help receive God's mercies in his life. He labored daily to make himself worthy of God's favor. One night, he had a dream where Jesus paid him a visit. Jerome collected all his money and he offered it as a gift. But Jesus told him, I don't want your money. He then rounded up all his possessions and he offered it as a gift to Jesus. Jesus responded, I don't want your possessions. Frantically, Jerome, he turned to Jesus and he asked him, Well, Lord, what can I give you? What do you want? And Jesus replied, Give me your sin. That's what I came for. I came to take away your sin. Give me your sin. And this is what Jesus wants from you today. In your heart of hearts, if you'll come to the cross right now and behold the man suffering there for you, if you'll roll your burden, whatever it is, no matter how heavy it might be, over onto his shoulders and believe that he has paid the price, a change will occur. You'll be different. You'll leave here today glad and lightsome. Turn your sin over to Jesus once and for all, and you'll be forgiven, my friend. You'll be set free. The moment you trust in His stripes, those surprising scars, healing will begin. In fact, I'm so sure of God's promise, your cleansing and your cure is the one thing today that won't be a surprise.